This is the Only One Shot Golf Podcast, and I'm Jim Gallagher, Jr. We took a few weeks off, and me having to do some golf channel duties, and I'm back and ready to go. Today I have Ted Scott, who caddies for Scotty Scheffler. We all know who Teddy is. We've seen him on the TV. He's one of the uh, more personality guys out there, but uh, there's more to this man than just what you see out there carrying the golf bag. He's one of my uh, good friends, and I want to welcome Ted Scott. Ted, you're driving uh, to Dallas. appreciate you spending some time with us. Yeah, absolutely. How you doing today, Tim? I'm doing great. You've been a busy man, and you've had a, several incredible weeks this uh, this season. But let's uh, let's go back in time, and let's talk about Ted Scott, the young Ted Scott. How you got started in golf, and maybe who some of your influences were early on. Yeah. So uh, every Christmas, Easter, and Thanksgiving, uh, I would my dad would pick us up, and we would go to Alexandria, Louisiana, to spend time with my grandparents. And uh, my grandfather played golf. My dad played golf, my uncle. So we'd either go out and do some duck hunting that time of year, and, you know, Thanksgiving, or maybe go go tee it up for a few. So I started playing as a young kid pretty much just on, on uh, holidays. And then we would spend the summers with my dad. So when I lived in Houston, where we, where we were, we really didn't have a golf course close by. And then uh, we moved back to Louisiana when I was in high school and started playing year-round then. So... But yeah, my definitely my just the men in my family influenced me, and they loved the game, and and I grew to love it myself. You became a pretty good player, and uh, I think you thought about playing professionally. You played? Did you play in college? I couldn't remember if you played college or not. Yeah, I went to McNeese my very first semester, okay. and, uh, and I was a mama's boy. I couldn't stand being away from home. So <laughs> after one semester, I said, "That's it. I'm going back to Lafayette. I can't do it." And so you gave up the college and you started but you tried to play professionally uh you know what what was it like trying to you know when you're trying to do that you know you've got a pretty good game you've practiced hard what was that like for you that experience for you yeah so i really didn't set out to play as a pro i, I actually turned pro to teach golf okay and at the time i was playing i was playing really well and uh a guy that i had just met he was an acquaintance said man you really ought to try to play you, you know you're really good and and uh, he was he was probably a 12 handicapper so i don't know why i was listening to him <laughs> thinking i could go out thinking i could go out and beat people that are pros because i'm shooting under par on easy courses uh, so anyway he gave me some money and and i went and played in some mini tour events and i said okay if i'm gonna do this i really need to practice so i started practicing at nighttime uh, i'm sorry practicing the daytime and waiting tables at night that was all i was doing getting wow. prepared for the 2000 season to have a go at, at pro golf and uh, the web.com tournament comes through Lafayette, Louisiana every year. I decided, Hey, if you want to get better at something, you, you got to spend time with people who are better than you. Why not go caddy for players that are on the web got web.com tour. And so I went out there and uh, I learned, you know, a couple things. Number one, man, I'm nowhere near as good as these dudes. And number two, caddy is pretty fun. And, uh, you know, that was great weight that I picked up that week. And he, he asked me to continue caddying some more. And, and I thought I would do it for a couple of years, save up some money so I wouldn't need a sponsor and then go back to playing. And here I am 23 years later, still, uh, still caddying. And so it's, you know, it's a humbling thing to, to set out to do one thing, but I've also been a tremendous blessing to work for such great players. Well, you also, you would go back to tour school. Uh, as I recall, several times, even though you were caddying, as I recall, you went back to tour school a few times there uh, when the off season was. If I'm if I'm not correct, there. Yeah, I went. 
Yeah, I went to Q School one time, and uh, I, I went to a swing instructor about a month before, and he said, man, we got to change your swing. Oh, boy. dumbest thing I could have done. I had no idea where the ball was going. Uh, it was it was awful. I was, you know, I was probably the worst I'd been playing the one time I went to Q School, and I was just like, you know what? This is just way too hard. I'm not prepared. I don't know what I'm doing. So uh, I was pretty lost when I went to Q School, and uh, and I was very discouraged, you know. I love to compete. I've, I've competed at a decent level on, you know, many different games and sports. But uh, but golf, you know, I don't really have a great resume <laughs> other than shooting a bunch of under-par rounds at home. The rest of my golf game is pretty weak. So, Well, you had some pretty good games with Mike Heinen, who won in Houston, and Kevin MacArthur, who's caddied some. Kevin was an assistant pro for years. You've had some pretty good games down there in, in the Lafayette, Lake Charles area. Y'all could uh, kind of get after it, couldn't you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my, my greatest victory over Mike Tynan was we were playing in uh, practice, a practice round in, at the Houston Open, the Shell Houston Open, back when it was at Kingwood, and he was trash-talking me as a caddy, and we got to this part three, and I said, man, I'll, I'll knock it closer than you on this part three. And he said, no chance, and he, he stepped up and hit probably a seven iron from 180 to about 15 feet on a pretty hard part three, and I took his five iron out, and... Uh, pretty much half bladed it over the water and it rolled up to about three feet and I took that as a victory and told him he'll never beat me again and then of course the, the next part three we played he's like we're going again I was like no man I already got my victory <laughs> well, <laughs> he, the, was so, he was so mad yeah you didn't so play you didn't play him for food there's the difference if you'd have been playing for food he would have beat you oh definitely I mean he hit, he had a great shot I had a terrible shot but I got the victory so it's it, Exactly, exactly. Now, you said you caddied for Grant Waite for a little bit. Who did you caddy for next? I know that Paul Azinger was in line there. Yeah, I worked for Grant for uh, for three years, and then um, I met Paul Azinger. Paul asked me to teach him how to play foosball, yep. so I started teaching him foosball, and uh, I went out and played one round of golf with him at Gator Creek in, in uh, Florida, yep. and I shot 67 and beat him that day, and he said, what are you doing caddy? And it was just one round. And um, he was like, you should go back to playing. So I, I quit caddying, went back to playing, and I was, you know, typical results, kind of lost. It wasn't, didn't really know what was going on. And uh, he asked me to caddy for him in Flint, Michigan, because they have great foosball at nighttime. And he had only made two cuts all year. Uh, at that point, it was August, I believe. And I was struggling on the mini tours after quitting caddying for Grant. So I said, sure, I'll go caddy for you. We'll have some fun, you know, play foosball at night. And uh, I helped him with his putting a little bit, gave him a little, you know, little tip I had learned. And he finished seventh that week and was like, wow, you know, you want to caddy again? And I was like, sure. So next thing you know, I was working for him for three years. So it was pretty crazy, you know, the way that I the way that I got into caddying for Grant, I wasn't planning on caddying. And the way I started caddying for Paul, I wasn't planning on caddying. Uh, and then after that, when Paul and I split, you know, I, I was talking to my brother-in-law about possibly going into real estate, so I was done caddying again, and uh, I got a call from Ben Crane. We, we attend the Bible study together, and he said, hey, there's this, there's this guy on tour. You know, you probably haven't met him yet, but his name's Bubba Watson. And, you know, I think I think he's looking for a Christian man to hire, and, and uh, I think you two would hit it off. So I was like, cool, you know, I'll give him a, give him a call, and we, we set up a two-week trial run. And we had a, a 12th, I think a 12th and a 14th place finish in our first two weeks. And there I was working for him for 15 years. So it's pretty crazy. Each time I've 
each time I've got into a job caddy and I really wasn't planning on it, but God had a different plan for me. As he always does. We don't always know what that plan is. Foosball, okay. Some of our listeners are fairly young listeners. Tell us about foosball. How do you get into it? And you're the 1994 national champion. And I've got one more story I'll ask you about that. But tell us a little bit about foosball. Yes, yeah, table soccer. You know, it's it's a game that has the handles, the little soccer dudes and the ball. And uh, my neighbor owned a pool hall when I was in high school. And I, I had enough credits to get out of class a, a year, uh, a week, uh, an hour early my senior year. So so I would go in the pool hall and shoot pool every, every day. And, and then at 6 p.m. I'd have to leave because I wasn't 18. And after high school, I turned 18, and I was able to go in there at nighttime. And every Monday and Thursday, they had about 30 or 40 people crowded around a few foosball tables screaming and hollering at each other. And curiosity killed the cat, so I walked over there and uh, was like, what is going on here, man? And I saw the incredible you know, hand-eye coordination that it took to do that game at a high level, and, and it just intrigued me. So I asked the guy if he would teach me how to do it, and he said, sure. And so I started playing in the tournaments every Monday and Thursday, and he taught me how to play. And uh, my friend Terry Rue and I were able to win three state championships and uh, 1994 world championships in amateur doubles, uh, you know, that year. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's a very competitive game. It's kind of an underground thing. People don't people don't know it exists, but I, I recommend you watch the documentary Foosballers. Uh, it's a really cool documentary to kind of give you an, an insight on it if you if you want to learn about it. It's a really cool game. Okay, now Zinger tells a story that you talked about the underground, that it reminded him of a basement in Silence of the Lambs. Do you remember that uh, particular spot you took him to? Yeah, so we were (laughs) playing at the Memorial Tournament, and uh, some of the top professionals in the world are actually from, uh, or live in Columbus, Ohio. And so, uh, you know, I said, look, do you want to go play with the best player in the history of the game? You know, we'll go play. I had no idea where they were going to take us to, so... They, I, if I remember, it was actually a storage unit, it's like an air-conditioned storage <laughs> unit. And we pull, we pull up in this kind of a rough-looking neighborhood, and they lift up these doors, and they got foosball tables in there and couches, and we just had a blast, man. About ten of us in there played, you know, played some matches, and Paul got to play with the best players ever lived. And of course, you know, they couldn't be beat, so he thought he was something, you know, playing with the best. <laughs> and he wasn't trash talking or anything like that. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's he's not that kind of guy at all. You know, he's, uh, he's very humble and you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's I knew that I knew you'd remember that story. But yeah, I remember Zinger talking about it and how much he loved to play and how good he thought he was. And maybe he was good, uh, but he he was way better than I was. But that's amazing, hand eye. That has to help. Uh, I mean, that shows how good an athlete you were in in hand eye with golf and all those other sports. I mean, that's an amazing uh, thing to find that. It had to help your golf game, I would assume. Yeah, you know, I'd say the one thing that I that I learned from foosball was I, I really didn't have any expectations from outsiders, uh, and so you know, one of the things I struggled with growing up was you know trying to please my family or please my friends, kind of a people pleaser. So whenever I would perform at something, I, I would naturally struggle with the pressure. Uh, just because I would be distracted from like, man, you know, what if, what if I don't do it and how are my friends or my family going to feel about that? And with foosball, nobody cared, so I truly could play it for the for the reasons that I wanted to play it. I just love to compete. And I actually love to compete at everything, but I often get distracted from, you know, outside things. And uh, with foosball, I didn't experience that. So the one thing that I was able to learn looking back on my foosball success was that I was passionate about 
and I worked hard, prepared, you know, my skills, kind of brought my toolbox to build the house, so to speak. And uh, and when I got there, it was about competing because it's what I love to do, not because I need to do it for some reason. And I think that allowed me to have the freedom to, to make mistakes and learn, but also have the freedom to, to go for it when the pressure was on and have success at a high level. And that was something when I played golf, I really, you know, I really wasn't able to do uh, mainly because, you know, when you play golf, everybody's like, oh, I heard you playing in a tournament. You know, you're probably going to win. And they put all these expectations in your head. And if you don't have the confidence to do that, then it just makes you even tighter. So, you know, now that's one of the things that, that I coach golf. I'm very passionate about helping other people to reach their potential and trying to keep them from being distracted because when you first start playing the game as a little kid, you play the game because you love it, and you might play in some tournaments because you love it. And then as you get better, each level you step up, the, the noise gets louder. And I've even mentioned that to Scotty, you know, after he won the Masters, I said, you know, get ready, buddy. It's about to get loud, you know, and it, and it really has. You know, it, it's been a little bit of a difficult journey, I think, for him even, you know, trying to deal with all the extra stuff because he's just like me. He's a guy that loves to compete. He loves games, any kind of game. And that's what he loves to do. But, you know, the world will put the expectations on you and you feel like you have to live up to it. And, and that makes the game difficult. So so that was what I learned from foosball. And I try to pay that, you know, forward with people that I run into. Oh, that's such a great comment. Because I talk about that when I'm doing live from expectations. It's the personal expectations. And we all know Hal Sutton. And he told me, and he's been on my podcast, and we talked about personal expectations. I said, they compared you to being the next Jack Nicholas. He goes, well, how could I do that? I mean, it strangled. It got to the point where he almost hated golf over it, and I think we're all guilty of that. We've all done it, and I think that's great that you've learned. It's kind of unique that you learned it from another sport or another game and now pass it on to even the Scotty Schefflers, the Bubba Watsons, all these great tour players. They have personal expectations, and you see it every week that it gets in the way. But uh, do you remember your first win as a caddy? Yeah, absolutely. I remember it um, you know, very well, but we were – we were playing in, in uh, the Travelers Championship in 2010, and uh, two weeks prior to that was, uh, you know, a, a qualifier for the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, and Bubba, Bubba didn't make it, and he was just flipping out, and I sat him down, and I told him, I, you know, I don't want to caddy for you anymore if this is the way you're going to be on the golf course. And, uh, you know, I just said, I, I just don't want to be this unhappy, you know, because of a golf ball going in the hole or not. I just, that's not how I want to live my life. And, and I told him, I said, I really don't think you want to live your life that way either, you know, and you're, you're letting this, this game and the expectations of your, you know, yourself, your family, your whoever stress you out to a point where you're kind of a miserable person. And I don't think that's who you are. And I don't think that's who you want to be. And, uh, you know, I thought he was going to fire me when I told him all that. You know, and he said, you're absolutely right. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, he's, he's hearing what I'm saying. And we went to the next tournament. And, uh, you know, it was, I remember we were on the 27th hole, the ninth green. And he started to flip out on Friday. And I said, hey, the clubhouse is right there. I will walk in right now. Or you can do what we talked about two weeks ago. And he said, yep, you're right. My bad. I'm going to have a good attitude. And he, he changed his attitude and uh, ended up getting into a playoff with Corey Taven and Scott Verplank. And, uh, and, you know, one of the other cool things that happened was, you know, I told him, I said, look, I think you should practice 104 footers every day, not because you can't hit a four footer, but because when you, when you need to make one, you can look back and say, man, I've, I've done a hundred of these every day for the last couple of months. And it turned out we had a four footer straight in to win his first tournament. 
Cole was feeling a lot of pressure trying to win for his dad for the for his first win before his dad passed away. So, uh, so I think that's another reason why he was so stressed out on the golf course, was just putting so much pressure on himself to try to perform and, and you know show his dad that he could be you know proud of him for something. And, and uh, so it was a really cool emotional win, and uh, you know I felt blessed to be a part of that. You know, I, I remember telling my wife that was ten years into caddying. You know, telling her, I wonder if I'll ever win as a caddy. You know, because many people caddy their whole life and never even get a win on the PGA Tour. And and uh, you know, to look at, back at that moment and to think, hey, I actually got a win, and then to think now where I am is pretty crazy. When you when you look back at that time and its timing of when you said something, that had to be so difficult. How, what made you or gave you the confidence to make a statement like that? To, to Bubba and, and to these players, you know, this is a this is a tough talk, and I, I think we all get thrown into and we watch instructors and we watch caddies. We need to be told not necessarily what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. But how difficult and when did when did you find that time? And it seems like that was the perfect time timing on what, what to say there with Bubba. Yeah, well, I think you know, in life in general, uh, anyone can be kind and courteous when things are going well, but, you know, really character is when character is revealed, true character is revealed when things aren't going well. And, you know, for me as a, as a Christian man, you know, I want, I want to be an example to the world and I'm, I fail often. It's just because I want to doesn't mean that I, that I do it, but I, I want to. And the fact that I want to means that I need to surround myself with people that will hold me accountable when I don't, meet the expectations that I, that I should. And so, you know, for me, I, I wanted it to be a priority for Bubba to be a great man before he was a great golfer. And, and the reason why is because, you know, winning a tournament is fun, but there's an emptiness if that's all you live for because the next week somebody else wins and now, now you're left with what? Where did my glory go? But if you're a great person and a great man and you surround yourself and create a life for yourself that, is wonderful and you can be a blessing to others then you really have something some substance there so when i saw bubba telling me that he wanted to be an influence on people and he wanted to be a a hero to kids and he wanted to do these great things and then he wasn't doing those things on the golf course i could either sit back and go well this sucks or i could step up even though it was the most difficult talk i've ever had to look somebody in the eyes and say hey, you're, you're being horrible right now, and this is not good, you know. Knowing that, hey, man, he could fire me, and, you know, maybe I'm about to lose my job, and we were, I think I think uh, my son was going to be born very soon, and just kind of like, okay, you know, there's a lot to risk here, but what's even riskier is for me to let a friend continue down a path. You know, it'd be like if you have a friend that's an alcoholic and you just don't say anything because you don't want to hurt his feelings. It's like, man, you know, this is detrimental to your family. So I just looked at it as a character that he needed a, a reflection, a mirror to see his behavior and and hold him accountable to that behavior. And he wanted that, and he, he, he received that. And not everybody's ready to receive it, and it, it could have just as easily went the other way. But I think I would have had peace of mind knowing that I had planted that seed and maybe somebody else could water it in the future. But God had already prepared his heart, so he received that word. And that was, you know, a really cool, special moment that, that I was able to participate in, knowing that I had a, a, a part in changing his life for the better. Um, you know, that's 
such a great joy that I have that I can look back on and say, man, that was so cool, you know, and winning was just a manifestation of him being a better person. That's some powerful stuff. Was that the most nervous you've ever been, Caddian? Yeah. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, I would say that was that was big. And then, you know, more recently, uh, I, I've been nervous at Ryder Cups. You know, I was very nervous um, in the 2016 Ryder Cup when, when they were coming back to beat us at Medina. I felt a lot of pressure there, you know, looking at the leaderboard and seeing all the, the blue up there and how it was switching, I felt you know, man, that was that was hard. You know, trying to figure out how to contribute to the team. But um, but probably the most nervous I've ever been, which is which is funny because I really don't live a life. I, I drive an old truck. I live in an old house. I don't really live a life of a, a guy that you know is all about money. But um, you know, there was so much pressure being put on Scotty this year at the at the FedEx Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, world number one, winner of four times. This that he's gonna this because he's gonna you know. 18 million dollars it was just like the noise was so loud and uh and i just i could tell that it was going to be difficult it was going to be difficult to perform in that final round just because it, the noise was so loud you know it was like i think if, if scotty was a 10-year veteran it wouldn't have been so difficult but being that he was you know fairly new on the tour um i just kind of felt a little bit lost as a caddy like man how, how am i going to help my guy relax and just do what he does because the, the cool thing about scotty is he doesn't care about money either he really doesn't i mean the dude's like he just loves to compete but everybody all everybody could talk about was 18 million dollars 18 million dollars and you know it becomes a distraction and then then we get paired with rory who's an incredible competitor who's just going to be swinging free no matter if he's eight over or eight under it's kind of how he is so it was, a, it was a difficult situation that's probably the most nervous i've ever been and uh you know, I have to learn from that too. I, I put a lot of pressure on myself that uh, that day to just try to help my guy do his best. And you know, you, you look back from those situations and you just try to grow and learn from it. Was that one of the? Uh, what's the most? When you look back at some of the things you've learned from these past players you've caddied with, uh, what's the what's the biggest lesson you've learned, or what are the things that all these guys common trait these guys have? And I always ask my listeners. What separates the elite player from the rest? And these guys are all elite players that you're talking about. But what separates that elite player from the rest of them? Yeah, well, in my in my coaching gym, uh, my philosophy is you have to be willing to hit the worst shot of your life in order to hit the greatest shot of your life. And you know, another way to look at it is you can't bury your money in the backyard and, and go grab it ten years later and think that it's going to be worth more than it was. You know, mm. you have to invest. You have to be willing to, to take some calculated risks. And the hardest part of being a great athlete is the greatest probably threat to any human being is their ego, you know, because we're all prideful by nature. And when you when you screw up in front of millions of people, you know, they're going to judge you on Twitter and, you know, Golf Channel and everywhere else, magazines, oh, he's a choker, he did this, he did that, he should have laid up, he should have went for it, he's, oh, he pulled that putt. You know, you're going to have to deal with all that stuff, and that makes it difficult to be willing to hit the worst shot of your life knowing that that could come down the pipe. But if you're not willing to hit the worst shot of your life, you're not going to hit the best shot of your life because truly freedom breeds confidence, and freedom under pressure breeds more confidence. So if you want to perform at a high level, you have to prepare well. Then you have to be free and willing to 
to learn from your mistakes by being free and committed, not by hanging on and being scared. And the players that I've been around that are talented, that don't reach their potential, they always have a little bit of hang on when it matters. And the players that seem like, man, this guy is not that good, but when he gets in contention, he wins. They seem to be like so willing to screw up that they're willing to, that they're able to hit these great shots under pressure. And if you think about the way God designed us, you know, with the flight or fight response, uh, fighting is often the best way, you know, and the people that are willing to stand their ground and fight do great things. And it's the same thing in sport. You know, you just got to be like, hey, I'm not going to run to this situation. I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to swing at it like I mean to hit it right here. And if it goes over there, it goes over there. But I, I'm trying to hit it right here, you know. And that's a hard thing to do, but it's really a decision. And once you decide to do that, you can start gaining confidence because once you are free and then you actually do the thing you try, you go, holy crap, I am capable of doing this. Maybe I'll try that again, and it builds momentum the other way. So that's what I think. That's been my observation over the 23 years of caddying on tour of what makes great players. That's a pretty good observation. Talk about decision-making. Your player wants to hit a six-iron, six and you want it to be a seven. Do you remember a situation where you've pulled him off and you went to that other club and maybe the anxiety or the nervousness you had when you pulled him off and convincing him that you were right on the, on the, correct, on, on the correct club? Yeah, one of, the, uh, one of the most memorable moments that actually you know, created a lot of hate for Bubba and it was, you know, it was a mistake on his part to, to respond that way. But you, you might remember the shot he hit on number 16 at Hartford, the mm-hmm. part three. You know, he had just he had just birdied the the 15th hole to take the lead by one, and we we got up on that uh, the 16th hole, and it was 157 yards to cover the right side, and he hits a normal nine iron 165 yards with no wind, pretty straight, and he wanted to hit a big hook because the pin was on the right, and typically when he was nervous he would hit a bigger curve. And so, he, you know, I gave him the number. It was probably like 180 yards or something like that. And it was into a pretty good win. And he said, you know, eight iron. And I, and I said, no, man, it's a nine. He's like, you don't think eight iron? No, you know, if you, if you hook this, um, it's definitely going to be, um, you know, it's definitely going to be too much club. So you got to hit nine. And so he hit the nine iron. And as soon as he made contact, a huge gust of wind came up. And he even said on the telecast, you can and, oh no, like, you know, gust the wind and it blew his ball and it landed a foot over and bounced back in the water. And he, you know, he flipped out on me. And it, you know, it wasn't about me. It was just, you know, like anybody, you want something to happen and you execute well. And if gust the wind knocks your ball in the water, it's hard to deal with that. And so, you know, looking back on that moment, that kind of challenged me uh, going forward when we'd have, hey, I think it's an eight iron instead of a seven iron what do I say something here? You know, that can make you gun shy. So the thing that I had to learn to do was, Hey, you know what? Sometimes I'm going to convince my guy to hit an eight iron and it's going to be a gust of wind or it's going to be the wrong club. And I have to be okay with that no matter what the consequences are. And just like he has to be free to swing at it. Like he means it. And sometimes it blows your ball in the water. He has to be okay with that. And when you, when you get that kind of a team together, then you really have something special. And, uh, you know, I think that's why I love working for Scotty Scheffler so much because that was one of the things that we discussed before I started working for him. I just said, look, I'm going to make mistakes. I don't want to be berated for it, and you're going to make mistakes, and I'm not going to be mad at you for it. So let's just go out there and be committed and free and do the best we can on every shot and, and not let, you know, the rest decide how we, 
how we go about it. Let's just go out and be committed and free to every decision we make and not look back, you know. I love that. I love that. I, I always felt like with my caddies, as long as we both were 100% committed, then that's all we can control. It's like you said, the wind comes up, the wind comes up. How long does it take you? You've made a couple switches. How long does it take you to kind of figure out how far guys hit it and maybe club selection in, in certain situations? How long is it? And how do you, is there a trick to how you kind of figure out these guys' clubs and, the, and their distances? Yeah, I mean, it's like anything. It's observation. You know, you uh, you observe behavior. If I if I told you to go pick up a snake and you're afraid of snakes, <laughs> and you you and you had to go to the hospital, you'd be like, "Holy crap, that snake was poisonous." <laughs> but if I told you to go pick up a snake and you were like, "I don't know, man," you picked it up and it didn't bite you, and then the next day you picked it up and it didn't bite you, eventually you would learn, "Oh, that snake's not aggressive and it's not poisonous, so I can pick it up." So you know, experience and behavior teaches you a lot and uh and the other thing is you know scotty's so dialed in on how far he hits his clubs that he kind of gave me right away like this is how far i hit an eight iron this is how far i hit a seven iron you know because these guys don't need anybody to tell them what club to hit when they're inside the dome but when it gets out there and the wind's you know a certain direction then you learn okay does he like to hold it against the wind or ride the wind and does he hit it higher or lower you know downwind into the wind you know things like that and you know, Bubble was probably the most difficult, but he also had the greatest feel. But he was difficult because he would change the trajectory so dramatically Yeah. Uh, that it was hard. It was hard to be like, man, this is playing 180 because he could hit about five clubs 180. So it was like, well, you know which club you want. <laughs> Just pick one. Uh, whereas, yeah, whereas Scotty is a much straighter hitter. You know, he doesn't change his trajectory dr- dramatically. So it's a little bit easier to adjust to his to his uh, ball flight, and he's such a smart, you know, very, very prepared player that it's, you know, as a caddy, I'm a firm believer that it's more about convincing a guy to believe in himself than it is about picking clubs and reading putts. I mean, you guys are all incredible at golf already, but under pressure, sometimes you forget that. So it's my job to remind you how good you are and just help you believe in what you're already doing well. Best pressure shot you sit in, or best shot you've seen under pressure? Maybe Ryder Cup, maybe Presidents Cup, Masters. Best shot you've seen under pressure? The best shot I've ever seen under pressure was uh, when Scotty had hit the three iron after taking a unplayable on uh, I think it was Friday uh, at Augusta this year. You know, he hit that three iron right at the flag on a really uphill lie after after hole hooking it in the. You know, to an unplayable, we could have easily made double and really changed the momentum. That was a really hard shot. The wind was blowing like 20 miles an hour left to right, back left pin, and man, he striped that thing. And, and I was, you know, I was shocked because he hadn't won a major. He's new on tour. He just became world number one. He had a huge lead. Like there's so many factors, uh, you know, that were in play where you feel like, oh, the wheels could come off here. And he just stepped up and you know, manned up, you know, whereas some people would say like the shot that Bubba hit out of the trees in Augusta, you know, oftentimes when you're in a very difficult situation, the expectations are lowered because it's like, well, that was just a really hard shot. It's not something that's going to probably pull off. So you're a little bit more free to mess it up, which makes you often complete the task. Whereas when you take a drop and now there's no trees in your way and you just have a kind of a normal golf shot, that's long and you know still difficult and more difficult because the situation that kind of pressure to me kind of freaks me out I'm like wow that's, 
that was some serious commitment and pressure, you know, right there to do what he did. So I would say that was one of the best shots I've ever seen. You know, you talk about pressure, Ryder Cup. How have you seen the Ryder Cup change? The American teams starting to really get it together and the future's bright for them. How have you seen it changed over the years that you've been caddying in Ryder Cups? Yeah, you know, I think the Ryder Cup is uh, – it's hard, it's been hard on America because we're always the favorite, you know. And like you said, it's like the house up thing, you know, earlier in the podcast. Um, you know, it's like, well, you're supposed to win. So that whole you're supposed to win stuff, you know, puts puts a lot of pressure on you to perform and can often get in the get in the way of what you're supposed to do, which is just go out and do your job and, and do what you normally do, and that's just play great golf. So – I think over the over the years we've we've started to realize like hey we really aren't the we really aren't the favorites you know after you win you lose what five or six times in a row you're like okay yeah. I don't care what they say on paper we better freaking go out and just play some good golf and you know there's nothing that coaches can do to make that happen but there's certainly uh, captains can do to make that environment fun and I think that's really you know the cool thing about Freddie Couples and the Presidents Cup is. The, you always kind of feel relaxed playing for Freddie. You know, he's just kind of like funny and laughs and cuts up and, you know, makes it kind of seem light. And uh, these guys seem to perform well when you can help them relax. So that seems to be a good formula going forward is like, hey, get in there, relax, trust in yourself and have some fun. Enjoy the moment, you know, instead of like, you better go out and win this or else, you know. Right. It, it just feels different. So I think that's helped us do well. No question. Back to Augusta with Scotty Scheffler. I remember sitting in the live from set, and I said one of the factors in, in, that we aren't really looking at is the Ted Scott factor. He's been there with Bubba. He's won with Bubba. I think in the, at the end of the week that's going to be a big factor. Did you have a pinch-me moment when you're coming up there the last few holes with Scotty that you have a chance now to be on the bag with another win at Augusta? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I think – Number one, you know, if you look at the pedigree of Scotty, he, he's done really well at every level. So you know he's that kind of player that can handle uh, the big situation, you know. And um, so I think that was a that was a very encouraging thing to be standing next to a guy that you feel like, man, this dude, he's ready. You know, he's ready to, to get this done. And then as we're walking up 18, knowing we could four-putt or whatever it was, uh, it was a pretty – real moment you know and I, and I told him I think I, I think I actually caused the four putt because after he hit his first putt I just said take it all in man like turn around you know look at all this and look at look at how cool this this setting is and uh boy did he take it all in on the next three shots <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he sure did hey, you gotta make every moment count <laughs> yeah. you know, Tiger actually heckled me we saw a Tiger recently somewhere and he, and he made fun of me he's like nice read Teddy you know and I was like yeah it's pretty much my fault I was I was putting the cart before the horse on that one you know exactly so, uh, but yeah that was that was a very special moment and uh, you know I, I still can't believe it honestly it, it was pretty crazy to be a part of that you know very humbled to be able to work with such great players and, and be and have so much success you know it's been it's been miraculous in my own life. Just I look back and go, wow, you know, thank you. When you look back, I see the caddies always grab the 18th flag. You drove your 18th, your, your master's flag around the house in your car. When when did that become such a big deal, the, the caddy taking the 18th flag? Do you remember? I, I'm trying to remember how back. I know the punk caddy for me for years, and it was a tradition guys have already taken. 
but that's pretty cool tradition that the caddies get the flag on the last hole. Yeah, I, you know, I I, uh, I remember one year at uh, Riviera, about one Riviera, and I was taking the flag off. They're like, "Hey, buddy, there's one more group." <laughs> so excited about it! I forgot there was a group behind us. That's awesome. So, uh, so yeah, man, it's it's something that you look forward to. You know, it's a it's a cool thing to take home and be like, man, you know, I was a part of this. You know, it's, it's something a little more than a memory. You can look at it and go, wow, dude, I can't believe that happened. You know, so very cool tradition. And, uh, and, I, and I hope to collect some more just because just it's fun. You know, it's fun to unscrew that cap. And uh, I have a really funny story with Louis Ustaz. And so the very first week I, I worked for uh, Scotty was at RSM. And Louie and Bubba were always heckling each other, you know, really bad. They have some really funny trash talk, a really brotherly love. And they're hilarious because, obviously, Bubba beat Louie in the playoff right. uh, to win the, the Masters. So, you know, Louie's kind of bitter towards Bubba in a fun way. And at the end of all their trash talk, Bubba would always, you know, come back with, have you ever seen me hit a shot off Pine Straw? You know, it's kind of like his go-to. <laughs> you know, so it was a really fun banter. Well, uh, so, so Louie would heckle me a lot, too, because I was caddying for Bubba. Well, we ended up getting paired with Louie at RSM my first week working for Scotty. And we're on the second hole, and I go to pull the flag out, uh, the pin out. And as I pull the pin out and kind of tilt the flag down, uh, the flag itself flies off the pin. <laughs> and Lou, and Louie Louis says something like, you know, he makes fun of me like, you know, there he goes again, you dummy, you know, I can't believe you hired this guy or something. I don't know what he said. And it was the greatest heckle of my life. And I said, I said, oh, my bad, Louie. When I saw you here, I thought it was time to take the pin off. The flag off. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it was like my greatest, the greatest heckle I've ever had in 23 years. I was like, one, I couldn't believe that came out of my mouth. And two, Louie's such a great sport that he loved it. He thought it was hysterical. And Scotty was like, oh, my gosh, dude, like. Oh, yeah. I can't believe you just said that to Louis Ustaz. So that was, that was funny, you know. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a cool tradition. And, uh, you know, I, I hope they do it some more. And I, I really admire whenever caddies get to do it. And, I, and I'm, I get pumped up, especially when someone has worked hard for a long time and, and finally gets to do that. It's a, it's a cool experience. One of my favorite things you do, and you do a lot of cool stuff on Instagram, is your Sunday sermons. And my family are big fans of your Sunday sermons. We grew up across, or we live across the street from North Greenwood Baptist Church here in in Greenwood, and uh, you know, 50 yards from the church. And our, you know, our faith is important to us. It's important to you. Uh, why did you get start doing those Sunday sermons, and how did you come up with each one each week? Uh, it's such a powerful message that you give each and every week. You do it. I know my fan, especially my son Thomas, is a huge fan of those. Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. I mean, I, I really, um, I don't even know how I got started to put it. I just I guess one day I just decided to put something that was on my heart out on Instagram and it happened to be on a Sunday and I was like, oh, Sunday sermon. And then I was like, well, that's kind of cool. And then, you know, next thing you know, I had another thought. And, uh, you know, I think there's a teacher inside of me. I love to teach people. You know, I, I just love to share information that I've learned from so many great people. One of the one of the blessings I got when I was about 19 years old was a young man who was 18 told me, he said, Ted, Every man is superior to me in some way. Therefore, I can learn from him. Even a bum off the street has something to teach me. And that was so powerful to me. I was like, wow, man, that's so cool. So I started looking at um, I started looking at, at people. I was like, man, each person has something to teach me. What can I learn, you know, by, by interacting with this person? And, 
and over the years, you know, many, many years of, of having that philosophy, I feel like I've learned a lot of cool stuff. And I'm not an organized person, so I don't have it written down. But these things, I'll just be hanging out, and all of a sudden, this cool thought pops in my head. I'm like, wow, that's, that's cool, man. I need to share that. And so I, that's how I come up with them. I, I don't have a schedule. I don't have a script. I just basically get a thought in my head, and I try to remember it. If it's Wednesday, I'm like, oh, I need to remember that until Sunday. And, and then when Sunday gets here, you know, if I have a message, I'll, I'll get on Instagram and, and just try to speak from my heart, whatever comes out, and hopefully it encourages someone. And, and that's my goal. It's not to, you know, to be cool. It's not to get likes. It's just, you know, I, I love to encourage people and try to share wisdom that I've learned. And hopefully if, if I can pass something along that inspires someone else in their life or help someone grow, then that, that means the world to me. So it's been a lot of fun, and, uh, and I, I enjoy it, and the feedback's been really quite tremendous so it, it surprised me one you just did uh about a week or so ago talk about passing uh something along was kirkland may former marine you gave him your president's cup hat the one that you really really liked and the message i took from it is about giving uh, and serving others and that relationship and, and i just thought that was pretty powerful uh it's just that it's an amazing story to watch you do something like that and it is a big part of your life and and you've been given we've all been given so much and to give back so i thought that was uh one of the best ones you've done and you've done a lot of really neat ones but that one really really hit home and and uh you know it's probably one of the traits that probably has helped you be a successful caddy husband dad uh is 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 the way of you teaching and serving and 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 giving Uh, you've been doing that your whole life yeah, you know, Jim, I, I'm I'm very flawed as a man. You know, I, I make a ton of mistakes, and uh, some of the mistakes I make are, are just I keep doing them over and over, and, and some of them I've learned. But the cool part is, is is that God's really showed me that, you know, like the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's like, okay, pick yourself back up, try to do better next time. What can you learn from it? You know, go apologize, make it right. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of how I've tried to live my life, and, I, and I've recognized mainly just from, from people teaching me that fulfillment really doesn't come from from temporary things. You know, it comes from investing in long-term things, spirituality, you know, faith in God, relationships with people. That's where you really get satisfaction from and a lasting satisfaction. So, you know, I've recognized that even though I, that is my favorite hat, and I love that hat, it was like, God, this hat's so cool. It looks good. It's USA. It's, you know, in memory of being on the President's Cup team, like it's all these cool things. But I'm like, man, my guy, you know, Kirkland was seven years a Marine overseas, stationed at times in places where I didn't know where he was. His dad and mom didn't know where he was, serving our country. And I know he loves the USA and he loves, you know, a cool hat. And I was like, man, I got to give this to him. You know, it's going to mean more to him. And then how cool was it that God, you know, honored that and had John Squarey, rec- you know, see my thing. And then he had another one. And he sent me one with a cool note. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Now I have a hat. He's got a hat, you know. It's like it just worked out so cool. But uh, but really, the fulfillment that comes from investing in people and relationships is is really an awesome thing. I'll share a quick story with you. I, I ran into Larry Fitzgerald. I met him through caddying for Bubba, and great guy, great man. And he told me, you know, he said uh, he said, you know, you know why I think my life is so good? Because I was like, why is your life so good? He's like, you know why it's so good? He said because all those years I played in the NFL. I invested in relationships, and now that I, now that I'm retired from the NFL, I have so many great people in my life, so many wonderful people in my life that I can spend time with, and so many great things to do. And he said, you know.
know a lot of people they don't they don't get that that opportunity they don't invest in people and invest in relationships so when they retire they have lots of money they got lots of fame but they don't really have substance and that spoke to me i was like man that's powerful dude you know because larry's just such a great guy and he and he just when you when you meet him when you hang out with him you're like oh, i just like this dude like i, I want to be like this guy why is he so fun to be around why is he so happy and when he said that you go ah there it is man you know so I'm trying to be like Larry and trying to be like other men in my life that I admire and, and just uh, hopefully share that info with other people. Uh, it's so well said because I, I always ask, I asked Archie Manning, you know, what's life after the NFL? What's life after sports? I mean, because I've been blessed to be able to go to work for the Golf Channel, you know, doing something I can do pretty well, and that's talk. Uh, so I could, uh, it, that's the thing. I've been, golf's been so great to, to me and the stories I have and, the, like you said, the relationships, the people you meet along the way. I mean, that's what makes our, our sport so great. But my son Thomas had a question. He said, if you weren't caddying, what would you be doing? It sounds like you'd be teaching and golf instructing, something like that. Is that something you probably would be doing? Yeah. Actually, when I split up with Bubba, that's what I talked to my family about going back to doing this. You know, full-time coaching. My my coaching had grown a lot. You know, I, I was actually coaching a ton uh, the last few years working for Bubba on the side. And, and, you know, just really the passion that I have, for the game of golf, but, but, but even more, like we just talked about is the passion I have for people and investing in people and trying to help people's lives become better. Um, that's something I love to do. And then, you know, because of that, a lot of, a lot of my friends have said, man, you should, you should be a pastor, you know? So I was like, well, I don't know about that. I'm not very diligent in a lot of things. I'm, I'm more of a wing it type person. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so that's probably what I'll be doing. Just, just teaching and coaching and, uh, and just sharing with people information that uh, that I've received, you know, that's helped me in my life. Well, this has been an amazing podcast, and I always kind of like to end it with, uh, remember whether in life or golf, you may have only one shot. you got to make it count. Teddy, you sure have made it count with a lot of people, a lot of people's lives. Uh, we wish you all the best, uh, you and Scotty, and uh, appreciate you spending time with us. We're going to get you back on uh, again. we we'll get to tell us a few more stories. may have to do some Sunday sermons and, and do one just special on the Sunday sermon uh, podcast. I think that'd be kind of cool. But we appreciate you spending time with us, and, and be careful when you drive up to Dallas. All right, my brother. Thanks, Jim. I'll talk to you later, man. Wow, was that a powerful message, and we appreciate Ted Scott spending some time with us on the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. So many great things he had to say. Uh, one of the good guys, and and uh, caddying for one of the really good guys on the PGA Tour, and and uh, I, I hope you enjoyed this podcast we've had with him. We'll have to definitely get him back on. Uh, some great messages for all you out there listening, and I want to just give out a special thanks to Steve Azar for allowing us to use his music. Uh, and don't forget to get your copy of Only One Shot. That's available on Amazon, written by VJ Trollio, the teaching professional at Old Waverly Golf Club. I'm Jim Gallagher, Jr. Until next time, we'll see you later. Fertile fields of flatlands and hills raised by anything, whatever a farmer can dream. Slug burgers, shrimp ball, catfish fried up in oil. Oh, good gosh, you're mighty. Just a husk of hot tamale now.